Hey guys, this is Drake. Thanks so much for tuning in to our City Church podcast here. It's an honor to have you. Hey, at the end of this episode, we'd love for you to take a moment, subscribe to this podcast channel if you haven't already. Also subscribe to our YouTube channel so we can continue to serve you with content that we're putting out on a weekly basis. And in addition, if we can serve you in any way or connect with you in community in any way, you can visit our website at citychurchboulder.com and we would love to connect with you there. And lastly, and most importantly, I hope this content is helpful to you. It's encouraging, it's inspiring, and you leave better than you showed up. Enjoy. Practice the way of Jesus together in Boulder. Drake spent some time toward the beginning of this series on what it looks like to be with Jesus through practices like silence and solitude and Sabbath. And the rest of this series, we'll be getting into just the nitty gritty of what it means to be human, digging into all the uncomfortable stuff no one likes to talk about, and it's going to be great. Last week, Dr. Tamara brought an incredible message on grief. If you missed it, you have to go back and check it out. She broke down how we experience and process grief and looked at the Bible of how God meets us in our grief and works through loss. It was amazing. If you missed any of the messages in this series, you can go back and listen on our podcast or website. The goal of this series has been to help us all begin to take a look into all the messy things that lie beneath the surface of our lives. And that's not always an easy thing to do, but the vision for this series from the beginning has been to learn how to partner with God, to do the work of digging out some of these things we keep shoved down under the surface to make room for him to do what only he can do, and shaping us into the image of Jesus and learning from his teachings on what life to the full can look like. Today, we're continuing on in the uncomfortable feelings journey talking about forgiveness. I approached Drake uh, last year about doing a standalone message on forgiveness, and it just so happened that we were stepping into this series, and one of those messy things that we all have to deal with at some point or another is forgiveness. So at first, I was pretty excited. This is something I'm passionate about and was getting the chance to teach on. And very quickly, like so soon after just starting to prepare for this message, I realized that forgiveness is a much more complicated thing to dissect as a follower of Jesus than I realized. I found out that some of my ideas and understanding about forgiveness were either only partially true and some things just completely wrong. And I'll share with you some of my preconceived notions later on in case you might have the same ones. I made the mistake of reading the book Forgive by Timothy Keller and every sentence of that book is like a slap in the face. It's phenomenal, but I had like 15 pages of notes and no idea what to do with it all after reading it. It wasn't actually a mistake. It was incredible, and I recommend reading it. Um, but it was a lot, in a good way. I will tell you, preparing for this message has felt more like a school assignment than any other message I've done in the past. Just the amount of research and reading and studying I did into the theology and practice of forgiveness I haven't had to do before. Are you just so excited? I mean, I know I'm totally selling this. There's gonna be a test at the end of today's talk too. Just wanna prepare you for that. Just kidding. That would suck. I'd never come back to a church if someone did that to me. Anyway, I'm so grateful for all that I've been learning on the topic of forgiveness. Super excited to um, share some of it with you today. Like I mentioned, this is a topic that has been on my mind for a while. I believe it is the heart of the gospel. I will say, and I feel like I say this every time I speak, but we could easily do a whole series around forgiveness. Many other churches do an entire like six-week-long series on the topic of forgiveness. 
for good reason, because there's so much to unpack. But for today, we're going to look at it from the goal of our series, looking beneath the surface at the forgiveness that we withhold from others, the forgiveness we have received from Jesus, the resentment we let saturate our hearts, what that does to us, and why we are called as followers of Jesus to forgive how he made it possible, what we're invited into, all for the purpose of looking more like him and loving our neighbors as ourselves. I also want to start by saying this is not easy. I know that. I'm not the most qualified person to be speaking on forgiving the people who have wronged us. We all have to do it, but some of you have been hurt and wronged in major ways, and I cannot imagine the burden of forgiving towards something of such great magnitude, but someone does. His name is Jesus, and so today all we're going to do is look at what he has to say about it. Before we do that, I do want to address the fact that I know there's a lot of debate around forgiveness in our culture and society today. Possibly more than ever, some believe that forgiveness is actually harmful to the victim. People go as far to say that it is morally inappropriate to forgive evil. That forgiveness is unjust, and on the surface, it seems that forgiveness and justice cannot coexist. According to Jesus, they can, and we're going to talk about that today, but I would honestly say that without Jesus, I might feel the same way. Because the more I've learned about it, forgiveness doesn't really make sense without him. Because no matter what model of forgiveness you believe in, without Jesus, we're missing the biggest part of the picture, the source of truth and power that even makes it possible. This topic is unique, I think, in that our personalities play a pretty big role in our view and understanding of forgiveness. For example, I am a type two on the Enneagram, which means I have a natural disposition toward empathy and compassion for others. It's a strength of the type two understanding, or at least wanting to understand why others do the things that they do. I feel other people's feelings, sometimes more than my own, which I still don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but that allows me to see the imperfect person, the struggling, hurting, broken person behind the action. I don't say any of that to brag at all. It's another thing with us type twos. Anything we say even resembles bragging. Freak out. Anyway, I say that to simply let you know where I'm coming from and recognize not everyone is the same as me. Some of you are, and even better than I am at these things, but I also know that some of you are type eights, who have a deep desire for justice or type ones who they themselves strive for moral perfection. They are their own greatest critic as well as everyone else's. You might hold people to such a high moral standard and have no room for people who do wrong by others. Type sixes who once trust is broken, it's almost impossible to get back. And I say all of that to let you know I understand we are all walking in with different feelings toward forgiveness and that's okay. So no matter where you're walking in today, you are safe, loved, and welcome. We're here to have the hard conversations, not tell you what to believe about them. I hope that today's conversation is encouraging, that you maybe learn something new and hear that above anything else, God loves you, wants the absolute best for you, and we're here to figure out what that looks like together. If you're a follower of Jesus, today we're looking at the instructions Jesus gave on how to forgive and what it is. If you're not a follower of Jesus, this is a message on the forgiveness available to you through him, who did what no one else could, to make a way for you to know him, have a relationship with the God who created you, hope in a future with him who works all things out for your good and his glory, and an invitation to 
the good life. And if you're a follower of Jesus, I hope this is a reminder of all of that for you too. Okay, our core text today is going to be out of Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. We're going to jump around to some other key verses and passages on forgiveness, but this is Jesus' main teaching on the subject. No surprise, it comes in the form of a parable, his favorite way to teach our very simple minds to help us fully understand what he means when he commands us to forgive. So I'll read this for us and then we'll dissect it together. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. Verse 21, then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. He goes on. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back, but he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. Verse 31, when the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in, you wicked servant, he said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to, shouldn't you? have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you. In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. A lot going on here. We'll get into all of it. Um, Something I do want to do first is address that historically, the Christian church has not done a good job at explaining the biblical teachings on forgiveness. They've been taken out of context, actually used in defense of abusive behavior. For example, the command to love your enemy has somehow been turned into ignore abuse. Or even here in Matthew, forgive 77 times means just take it, no matter what they did to you or how many times, just turn the other cheek. Some of you have been taught that to forgive means letting them off the hook and That is simply an incomplete idea of forgiveness that really doesn't do anybody any good. And if any of that has been your experience, I first wanna say that I'm sorry, and I hope that I can clear some of those things up today and provide some clarity around what the Bible actually has to say about forgiveness. So one thing I wanna make crystal clear on the front end today, because I think it's important and not said enough in Christian circles, is that Jesus, never ever has or will ask you to stay in an unsafe environment or relationship. There's no message of forgiveness in the Bible that says abuse is okay and if you ever need help, we are here for you. Forgiveness is not black and white. Today we're gonna look at just how murky and complicated it is, possibly the most complicated thing we are asked to do as followers of Jesus and it always requires divine help. With that said, Let's get into it. In Mark chapter two, there's a pretty well-known story about Jesus healing and forgiving this paralyzed man who was lowered down by his buddies on a mat 
through a hole in the ceiling in front of Jesus. Pretty cool story all around. These guys had faith that by just getting their friend in front of Jesus, he would be healed. Have you ever thought logistically, though, about the fact that those guys dug a hole in the ceiling in front of Jesus and, like, lowered him? Like, if that was someone's house, they had to be so pissed off. And can you imagine being in there? I mean, that's not a slow thing. Cut out a hole in a ceiling. Everyone was probably like, what the heck is happening? Anyway, not important. The important part is that before Jesus healed the man, he said, your sins are forgiven. Jesus knew that this man's first and greatest need was for God that giving him the ability to walk was an incredible miracle, but that his forgiveness was the true doorway to this man's peace, love, and joy. And the same goes for us. That story makes me think about all the things that we want in this world and think will bring us that peace, love, and joy that we desire. Jesus says it's through embracing what he did for us. I said it earlier that forgiveness is the heart of the gospel. Jesus did what he did to forgive us, of our sins. A lot of the time, we, uh, when we talk about Jesus, we love to talk about the stuff that feels good to us, and it is good stuff. He loves us. He provides for us. He's the Prince of Peace, our comfort in the storms of life. That's all incredible and true, and we remember forgiveness, but at least my personal experience, we do not emphasize it outside of maybe Good Friday, a specific night to remember what Jesus did, because it's heavy. We take communion every week, but how often do we remember the magnitude of what Jesus did that day? And remember that the reason he came down to earth was to accomplish dying the death that we deserve for our sin and brokenness. When I was 15, I decided to start going to church, reading my Bible, and praying. And at the time, I thought that's what it meant to be a Christian. And it wasn't until God met me in the middle of my sin and brokenness and said, I died for that, for you, so that you can have hope for your future, healing for what you've done and what's been done to you. I died to make you whole, to make you pure, to forgive you so that you can know me and know the love that I have for you. It's when we mess up, that's where God meets us with the fullness of what he did for us. And that's what changes me embracing the forgiveness of Jesus. Going to church, reading the Bible, praying are all great things, but believing in the gospel is the beginning of transformation. So let's go back to our passage. In verse 21, Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times, Jesus says, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. So first thing we learn from Jesus here, this is not a literal forgive someone 77 times. As soon as they hit 78, let them have it. Throw some hands, try to make them cry. No, it means if you're keeping count, you're not truly forgiving. As followers of Jesus, we are living in what we call the upside down kingdom. You may have heard this term before. It's essentially God's kingdom here on earth that is counter to the world or human nature. The biblical model of forgiveness is the complete opposite of our nature, specifically the idea of fight or flight. When someone hurts us, it is in our nature to either seek revenge or leave. So let's play those two scenarios out, leaving or fighting. I promise you, if you leave, you will be hurt in some other way eventually by the new person or community you choose because people are broken. Remember, I'm not talking about abusive relationships. I just mean seeking perfection because it just doesn't exist. 
Jesus invites us into the messy and complex where we are called to a depth of relationships where you've had to forgive each other 77 times and then get to discover the beauty in that. Let me explain. I love my husband, Seth, more today than when we got married three years ago. Don't know if he'd say the same about me. I have some issues seeing someone about it. Moving on. If I chose to leave at the first time he did or said something that upset me, I wouldn't know the depth of love that I've gotten to experience through knowing someone so deeply and being known and forgiven. A forgiveness that I don't deserve, but that has strengthened our relationship possibly more than anything else. If I chose to fight with him every time he did or said something I didn't like, we'd have a pretty messed up relationship, and we all know that happens. It's not to say that Seth and I are perfect at this, by the way, but by the grace of God, we're learning what it looks like to love each other better, and forgiveness is essential to that. And the same thing goes for building community and friendships, so Jesus says there's a better way. According to Tim Keller, real forgiveness consists of four things. Number one, recognize that the person who wronged you did something wrong. Let's look at verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle his accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. First of all, I've listened to comparisons of what 10,000 bags of gold would be in our currency today, and it's like a bajillion dollars, an amount no one would ever actually be able to pay back, which I think is intentional. Second, though, the king here is acknowledging the servant owed him money. So step one is recognize and acknowledge to yourself and to them they did something wrong. 1 Peter 4.8 says that love covers a multitude of sins, not love overlooks. Leviticus 19, these are God's words to Moses. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so you will not share in their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. What does God say to do? Rebuke your neighbor frankly so you will not share in their guilt. What does that mean? First of all, to rebuke is to express sharp disapproval of someone's actions or behavior. Now, I highly encourage fleshing out the specifics of the Bible's instructions on rebuking. It's more than we have time for today but it hopefully goes without saying it has to be done with love for that person. In 2 Timothy, Paul says, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. We see this commandment again from Jesus in Luke 17, if your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. So hopefully that corrects the lie that you might believe, that forgiveness means people don't have to face the consequences of their wrongdoing. But what God says next is do not seek revenge or bear a grudge. Revenge is an interesting concept, and I think our society today tends to confuse revenge with justice. God is just, but he tells us not to seek revenge. A few weeks ago, I watched the new Equalizer movie with um, Denzel Washington. Now I had this whole forgiveness message in the back of my mind while I was watching it probably wouldn't have thought this otherwise, but I couldn't stop thinking, man, our culture today loves the concept of this movie. We see a bunch of bad people do a lot of bad things, and we get so stoked when Denzel just comes in and kills them all. Like, yeah, take that. We just eat it 
up, and it's in so many of the movies that we watch today. Good guys killing bad guys because that's what they deserve. Have you ever thought about why death is the thing that we go to as the ultimate punishment, too? I mean, it's a biblical idea. The worst thing that we deserve, death, is what Jesus did in our place, specifically spiritual death. I know that movie is a silly reference, because it's a movie, it's not real, but our society does love a good revenge story. And it made me think of how we view justice today. We either think that the person needs to do enough good to outweigh the bad that they did, or they need to experience the same level of suffering that they've caused. And we do this to ourselves too, don't we? When we mess up, we either try to do enough good to make up for it, or we punish ourselves with shame and guilt, thinking that it's what we deserve. Here's what Jesus says that true justice is. It's him taking the punishment and death that we all deserve on the cross and dealt with it there once and for all. First John chapter 1, verse 9 says he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Jesus is love and just. He makes it possible for forgiveness and justice to coexist because of what he did that day for me and for you. And the truth is that there is nothing too big that his sacrifice that day can't cover. We think people should get what they deserve. Jesus did for them what they deserve, and it's the same for you and for me. Jesus accomplished the love and the justice of God. And I'll be honest, I don't love that answer. I mean, it's incredible, but my flesh says that people who do really bad things deserve the punishment. But doesn't that put me in the judgment seat? thinking that I know what's right. The Bible says that any and all sin separates us from God and the result is death. How can I embrace and accept and be grateful for what Jesus did for me and choose for someone else that they're not worthy of it? And if that's what we choose, to say that what Jesus did was not enough, I think you will find that the justice of the world will disappoint because it's not complete. Tim Keller describes three modern secular approaches to forgiveness. The first is called non-conditional forgiveness, otherwise known as cheap grace. This is where the emphasis is on the victim's healing, and that is the only concern. When we approach forgiveness this way, victims actually report feeling guilty because the perpetrator was not held accountable, which is so backwards and not what the Bible says despite the way that it's been taught. The second is called transactional forgiveness, or little grace, where forgiveness is only given if the wrongdoer does something or enough to make up for what they did. Also incomplete. And the last is simply no grace at all. No forgiveness, no matter what, because they don't deserve it, which leaves us imprisoned in our own unforgiveness, thinking that's what is right and best. We think we understand justice claiming that it is our right to determine what people deserve. We spend our lives judging others' actions and motivations as if we know them, comparing everyone to ourselves and what we would or wouldn't do. We have become experts in something that was never ours to do. Judge. What does God say? Love. Love your neighbor as yourself. What did Jesus say is the greatest commandment? Love God with all your heart, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. What does God say in Leviticus is loving your neighbor as yourself? Forgive. 
And remember why we're here, why we're talking about this, to look more like Jesus, through practicing the way together. Jesus himself, one of the last things he said before he died on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. He chose to have understanding for the people that were literally murdering him. Which brings me to step number two. Understand that they are a fellow sinner. Forgiveness comes down to understanding that we are all broken and capable of sin. Where we get stuck is in thinking about how different this person is from you, that what they did you would never do, so that makes you better than them and again worthy of determining what they deserve. You're probably familiar with this story in John chapter 8 of the woman caught in adultery. I want to read it really quick. Verse 3, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Side note, it's going to bug me for the rest of my life that we don't get to know what he was writing in the sand that day. It's the first thing I'm asking him when I get to heaven. Okay, verse 7. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin to be the first to throw a stone at her. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. The message of this story is pretty simple and straightforward. We are so quick to judge the actions of people who sin or do things that we wouldn't do and think that's enough for us to know what punishment they deserve. So quick to deal with a speck of sawdust in other people's eyes because it makes us feel a little bit better about the plank in ours. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 14, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. I've wanted to ignore this verse for a long time because it sounds like God is saying that our forgiveness is dependent on us forgiving others. But I think that what Jesus is actually trying to communicate here is that the divine forgiveness that we receive from God when we make the decision to believe in and follow him should change our hearts. So if we are like the unforgiving servant and choose to not forgive the people who owe us a debt, we have not fully experienced the magnitude of the forgiveness that Jesus has poured out on us. So let's look at what happened to him in Matthew 18. The king finds out that the servant didn't forgive his own servant's debt, and the king says, you wicked servant, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? Tim Keller said that the fear of the Lord is to be affected deeply by who God is and what he did. To accept forgiveness and not be forgiving means that we haven't truly embraced what God did for us. So how do we do that? Something talked about uh, a lot in our society today is the idea of forgiving ourselves. I get the concept, but I don't see anywhere in scripture that talks about forgiving ourselves. What we're feeling when we recognize the need to forgive ourselves is shame, which Keller said is the experience of secular people when they feel like sinners without having a name for it. Guilt and shame are not from God. Conviction is. 
And what changes our feelings of shame or guilt is when we are able to fully embrace the forgiveness of Jesus. To get to a place where we believe that what he did was enough to make us whole and believe him when he says we are pure because of his sacrifice. Keller said that forgiveness gets down to the bottom of things, to the alienation we feel from God and from ourselves because of our wrongdoing. Our need for forgiveness goes back to the literal beginning of humanity with Adam and Eve in the garden. It is one thing that is true of every single one of us, and we spend our lives trying to find ways to cover up our deep sense of inadequacy. For Adam and Eve, it was fig leaves. For you, it might be your perfectionism, your work, your spouse, your kids, money, praise, your body, sports, experiences, whatever it is for you, you will be constantly disappointed and hurt until we let the truth of the gospel transform our hearts. And the beauty in all of this is that it not only changes our view of ourselves, our understanding of the world, understanding who our God is, but there we find power and strength to be transformed, to look more like Jesus, and able to tap into the source of forgiveness that even makes it possible. I've been pretty open on this platform about my struggles with insecurity. I wish I could say I'm totally confident now and never doubt myself, but that would be a lie. I've grown, but it's a journey, a process, and a daily need for the reminder of what Jesus did for me. And that's what changes me. Not the amount of good things I do, not how helpful I am to others, how hard I work, how much I know, the experiences I have, what changes me, and my understanding of who I am in the kingdom is when I truly know and believe what Jesus did for me and of what it costs him to forgive us. We all have access to this free grace, but to make it free to us, it costs him everything. He lived a perfect, sinless life, died the death that we deserve, was resurrected three days later, and says that the reward that he deserves belongs to us who believe in him. 2 Corinthians says God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Thank you, Jesus. That's what changes me. It makes me hate my sin but affirms who I am because of what Jesus did for me to make me free. The gospel forbids me to hate myself or anyone else. It is the key to personal transformation and the source of our ability to forgive. It doesn't make sense, but it's why I follow him today. Why I have surrendered my life to him, to have his way in me, why I worship him, and why I choose to forgive. Just like anything else that Jesus asks us to do, forgiveness is not about trying really hard. The more we embrace what God did for us, the more we are able to forgive others. And if Jesus says there is nothing we can do, to deserve his forgiveness, why do we think people need to earn ours? In the movie Redeeming Love, toward the end of the film, someone who wronged the main character comes to her and asks for forgiveness. I love her response. She says, how can I not forgive you with the amount of forgiveness I've been given? Number three, here's where the real work comes in. Release them from the debt they owe you. 
Matthew 18 was Jesus' core teaching on forgiveness. The first thing we need to recognize is that forgiveness is not about a feeling towards someone. It is a debt that someone owes you. Someone does something wrong and our mind goes to they deserve X, Y, and Z to make up for what they did or to cancel out the bad they did. From that passage, the issue is a debt of money. While it's not always going to be a debt of money for us, forgiveness is a debt. And according to Jesus, to truly forgive someone is releasing this person from what they deserve. Verse 27, the servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. Forgiveness is letting go of this grip we are holding on to someone so tightly, otherwise known as resentment. If you've ever seen the movie The Shack, it focuses a lot on the idea of forgiveness. Now, I recognize it is a fictional movie, not the Bible, but I think there are some extremely biblical ideas from that movie on forgiveness. In the film, the main character is wrestling with the idea of forgiving someone who did wrong by him. And no spoilers, but like one of the worst things someone can do. And the God character tells him that it might take a thousand times of just saying the words, I forgive you, before you begin to feel it. Forgiveness is not just a feeling. We can't wait to forgive someone until we feel it in our hearts. It is a choice and a process. The incredible news, you don't have to do it alone. For me to embrace forgiveness fully, I've had to accept that I might not ever fully understand it, and that's okay. What I am called to do, what I can do, is trust God is choose to believe that he is good, all-knowing that he is love and justice. There's a scene in the movie um, that's pretty intense, but really good. The main character, Mac, is in this boat on a lake, and his boat starts to flood with this black water, and he starts to panic. And the sinking boat represents his internal battle with the pain and unforgiveness he's been holding on to for so long, trying to do it all himself, and then Jesus shows up standing on the water, all he says is, look at me. Look at me. This can't hurt you. Keep your eyes fixed on me. Trust me. And suddenly, the boat isn't sinking. The water's gone, and he's dry and safe because he chose to trust God. When all we see is the pain that someone has caused us, we lose sight of God. Things like resentment, and anger rob us of joy and cripple our capacity to love. The late great Carrie Fisher once said that resentment is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. What that means is that we think that by staying angry, they are getting what they deserve when really you're just hurting yourself. Resentment robs us of gratitude, sneaks its way into other relationships, either makes us start to feel superior makes us forget that we too are sinners, or we start to pity ourselves, which leads to entitlement and ultimately cynicism toward people. But when we choose to fix, it, fix our attention and thoughts and focus on God, he meets us in our pain and brings unimaginable good to the brokenness in our lives. Forgiving doesn't mean that all your anger will be magically gone. It means I'm going to treat you the way God treated me. I think it's important to understand and make the distinction that anger towards someone is not the opposite of love. Hate is. Anger is a defense mechanism that can be righteous. It is okay to be angry at injustice. What we need to pay attention to is what are you defending when you get angry? Because more often than not, you'll find it's your own pride. 
And that unrighteous anger will create a restless spirit within you that is controlled by your past. And in the wise words of Sid the Sloth, you need to let go of the past so you can have a future. Quoting all the big names today, I got Princess Leia, Sid the Sloth. You can really tell where my inspiration comes from. Movies and fictional characters, it's great. Last but not least, number four. This is the hard one for me, aim for reconciliation. Keller said that the ultimate purpose of forgiveness is the restoration of community. As followers of Jesus, relationships are everything, our relationship with God, with other believers in the world around us. So almost everything he invites us into is around one of those three relationships. He commands us to forgive with the end goal being the reconciliation of that relationship. With that said, it's not always possible. And in all of this, but especially this step, you have to process it all with God. There are absolutely cases in which a relationship with that person is not the final outcome, but the love that we're called to is also sacrificial. So this is not black and white, and we have to seek God every step of the way. Luke 17. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. This is a passage on reconciliation, not forgiveness. Because as we've seen, we are not called to wait until someone repents or apologizes to forgive them. That happens in your heart. Jesus' instructions here are about the relationship. And first thing I want to address here is that word repent. The word itself means to change the way that we think. As followers of Jesus, this is something we do constantly as we learn and grow and are formed to look more like him. In this context, Jesus is saying that when we sin, true repentance is acknowledging that what we did was wrong and accepting the consequences of our actions. It does not mean to feel guilty. It's a deep conviction and understanding of the harm caused by our actions. So Jesus says, rebuke them, and if they repent, forgive them in action and in words. To reconcile does not mean to forget. You've probably heard the saying before, forgive and forget. I honestly don't think that's what Jesus calls us to. I think it's an impossible ask to say forget what they did to you. There is something to say for not reminding yourself constantly of the hurt, but forgiveness means releasing the power this person has over you. There's a lot that can be said on the instructions of reconciliation, more than we have time for today. I encourage you to read Tim Keller's book on forgiveness. It addresses each possible scenario of forgiving and reconciling. It's phenomenal. For today, we're looking beneath the surface at the command to forgive in our hearts. So let's look at the end of our passage in Matthew. This is after the king found out his servant had not forgiven the debt his own servant owed him. In verse 34, in anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. This is the part of the story that I always struggled with a little bit. Like, is it saying God is going to doom us to torture until we forgive the people that have hurt us? Tim Keller put it this way. I'd never thought of it like this. It's brilliant. The idea is that when the servant is thrown into prison, that's not punishment from the master, from God to us. But it's what withholding forgiveness does to us, to our souls. We are sentencing ourselves 
to this inner torture until we are able to forgive from our hearts. Forgiveness is a heart issue. It's why we're talking about it in this series. Tim Mackey said that the heart is the intersection of emotion and will, or choice and feelings. Remember, forgiveness is not just an emotion. It is an act of will that requires divine help. Philippians 3, verse 10, this is from Paul. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. What was Jesus' greatest suffering? The punishment that he took for our sin. So maybe sharing in Jesus' suffering, becoming like him in his death, includes participating in the forgiveness of others, knowing that it will cost us. And Jesus models for us how to take that debt for them, which is possibly the most loving thing we can do. We have an opportunity, I think, to first embrace and then show off God's love to the world through the practice of forgiveness because it goes so against the social norms of holding grudges and cutting people out of your life. If our greatest command was to love our neighbor, what bigger way than to forgive? And the benefit, at most, the reconciling of relationships and at the very least, healing for your heart. To forgive is to give that person a gift that they do not deserve. It's what Jesus did for us, voluntary suffering and what we're invited into. And what does Paul say we will gain? Knowing Jesus and becoming like him. It's still hard. I don't understand it all. I choose to trust God, that he is good and love and just all at once. So what do we do with all this? I know today was a lot. If I wasn't making any sense, it's probably because I wasn't and I'm still figuring all of this out. You might have more questions now than when you walked in. So do I. So like I said, at the beginning of today's message, forgiveness is so much more complex than I realized. I think it's one of those things that's a lifelong journey of figuring out as we hurt people and are hurt by people, something we cannot get away from this side of heaven. But thank Jesus, he gives us some guidance on how to deal with it all. So here's just a few tangible things we can do this week in response. Number one, pray for the people who have wronged you. And I say to start with praying because that's something we all can do. And I believe it's the starting line to forgiveness, our first response, giving it to God. If we are actively praying for them to know God and for him to change their hearts from there, you can begin to process with God and in community what it can look like to walk through the steps of forgiveness. Everything we address today can apply to the big hurts and the little things. You'll probably find that we have to forgive daily and be reminded of the forgiveness we have received daily. So posturing our hearts to have a response of giving it to God in prayer is essential. Number two, pray for more faith. After Jesus' teaching on forgiveness in Luke 17, here's how the apostles respond. They say, increase our faith. Jesus said right before this in verse 4, if your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. If they repent, forgive them, even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. The apostles don't say, okay, easy, done, will do. No, they're probably thinking, are you kidding me? That sounds impossible. So they say, increase our faith. 
Jesus says right after this. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it will obey you. I know a lot of us are familiar with this verse. I didn't know that this was in response to the apostles asking for more faith to forgive. I think there's a lot of ways to interpret this verse, but I think Jesus knows how hard of an ask it is to forgive. Again, possibly the most challenging thing we are called to do. So much so that he compares it to uprooting a tree and throwing it into the sea. I think that's intentional because maybe that's what it feels like to forgive sometimes. And we need more faith to do it. So pray for more faith. Number three, when someone hurts you, don't keep bringing it up to them, to others, or yourself. This is aside from the instructions on rebuking and how to approach people who have wronged you because like we talked about earlier, there are instructions on bringing it up to them and dealing with it. Right before our passage today in Matthew 18, Jesus gives specific instructions on approaching someone you are in conflict with. And he always says, deal with it by the way. For my conflict-averse people in the room, I know it's hard, but it could be argued that to choose to not deal with conflict is choosing to stay in unforgiveness. How can you reconcile with someone if they don't even know what you've been thinking and feeling? So this step is for after all that is dealt with, don't keep bringing it up to them. Don't gossip about it to others. Gossip is the evidence of unforgiveness. And don't get stuck today in the big sins and hurts. Those are absolutely valid. But more often than not, unforgiveness is going to look like that little voice inside your head of comparison and judgment. And when it's not dealt with in your heart and with Jesus, gossip is the byproduct. And the hardest one, don't keep bringing it up to yourself, letting yourself replay it in your mind. When we do that, we aren't truly forgiving. We aren't truly letting go. So this step is essential because this is what starts to change our character, how healthy community is developed and how we practically love our neighbors as ourselves. And last one, number four, Read Forgive by Timothy Keller. This book gives some in-depth instructions on how to forgive for all of the different situations we might face in this life. So I recommend reading it because it addresses a lot of what we couldn't get to today. Today's message was like a starting line just to understanding forgiveness. So I encourage you to keep learning. If you're not a follower of Jesus in the room today, I want you to know that there is nothing too big that he cannot forgive. And you are invited into a relationship with him today with the one who lived a perfect, sinless life, died the death that we deserve, was resurrected three days later, and says that the reward that he deserves belongs to us who believe in him. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for what you did for us, that you have judged us all worthy of love. Thank you for the example you gave us on how to deal with and process this messy thing called forgiveness and the promise that we never have to do it alone. I pray for your presence and power and truth to fill us up and that through being with you, we will become like you and learn more and more how to love people the way you did. Thank you for the forgiveness you have poured out on us. Help us to be reminded of that truth daily and through that have the strength to forgive others. Show us where we're holding on to unforgiveness. And thank you that you always meet us where we are with grace and love. I pray that through this practice, we would see reconciling of relationships and know the depth of love and forgiving and being forgiven. Amen.